History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 384th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going up to the New England area and hitting Boston, which we don't do very often. And we're going to be talking about the Boston Common. Make sure you packed your parka. (laughs) This is actually a location that I have visited probably about five or six years ago. And when it comes to the Boston Common, people are going to love this episode because we have witch hangings, true crime, and haunted cemeteries all in this episode. We've got it all. (laughs) Because the Boston (laughs) Common has it all. So we're looking forward to sharing it with you guys. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Michael, Lydia, Shonda, Mimi, Beth, Amy, and Laura. Thanks for joining us in our Facebook Spooktacular crew. And now, this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Robert Cruz. Supposedly, if one drives down Peyton Drive to where it dead ends into Woodview Road in Chino Hills, California, and then makes a right turn and then a quick left, they will come upon a very dark wooded area. There's a road through that area that curves back and forth as the darkness pulls the car deeper into the woods. There's a locked gate and security camera at the end of the road. It is in this area where people for years would claim to see the mysterious green mist. Teenagers challenged each other to brave the drive as they shared stories of urban legends. There were stories of satanic cults meeting up on the hill and making animal sacrifices. There were rumors of a government missile launch site. While those stories are fun, the latter is the closest one to the truth. A company named Aerojet was located on the property. They were a defense contractor during the Vietnam War. They didn't have any missiles on site, but they did build and test landmines. The tests involved using human cadavers to see how much damage the landmines would do and tamper them down so that they would maim rather than kill. They also tested gases by exploding them and occasionally when those gases mixed with the fog in the area, it would appear as a green mist. The mystery of the green mist might be solved, but the story behind it certainly is odd. This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history. In 
month of May on the 7th in 1945, the German Instrument of Surrender was signed. This was the legal document that ended World War II in Europe and killed the Nazi Party. The first version of this was signed in a small red brick schoolhouse in Reims, Germany, by General Alfred Jodl. The document called for the unconditional surrender of all German fighting forces and was witnessed by American, Russian, British, and French ranking officers. General Jodl asked for a 48-hour grace period, and this was granted, but Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower informed Jodl that he would be held personally responsible for any deviation from the terms of the surrender. A more formal signing was held the following day, May 8th, in Berlin. This required three members of the German High Command to sign the agreement. Western allies consider May 8, 1945, victory in Europe Day, while the Russians, who wouldn't recognize the earlier instrument of surrender because it wasn't done in Berlin, consider May 9, 1945, as Victory Day. Boston is one of the oldest cities in America and full of history. One center of this history is the Boston Common, which is considered America's oldest park. The Common has been around for well over 350 years and has been witness to some of the most important moments in American history, from public hangings to wars to victories to protests to public mourning and so much more. Nearly every war since the city was established has had a connection to this central heart of Boston. So much emotion is wrapped up here. It's not surprising that strange experiences are reported all over the Common. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Boston Common. Considering the age of cities in America, we calculate based on European settlement. But not only is this a fallacy when it comes to human civilization here, but anything connected to the land needs to be known to truly understand hauntings or spiritual activity. The first European to settle in the Boston area was a man named William Blackstone. He arrived in 1628. Many Native American tribes were already here. The state of Massachusetts takes its name from one of those tribes. Other tribes include Poig. Wampanoag, Namkiog, Naranganset, and the Nipmuc people, who descended from the Algonquian and were known as the Freshwater people. And that is what this area provided, fresh water. So it was very desirable for settlers. And shortly after Blackstone arrived in this plain that the Native Americans called Shamut, the Puritans arrived. Blackstone had been living in a small house at peace with his indigenous neighbors, and he soon felt crowded out by the Puritans, even though Kelly, he actually is the one who invited them to come. So it's like, hey, everything's great here. We got fresh water, all kinds of land. Why don't you guys come on up? They overstayed their welcome. <laughs> and he, I don't know if he just was like, maybe not so many of you <laughs> could come. He finally found out he was an introvert like us. That could be. So, you know, you always think you want to go to the party and then you get there and you're like, uh, yeah, I don't want to be here. Time to go. <laughs> he eventually left and moved west deeper into the woods. The Puritans changed the name Shamut to Boston in honor of an old Lincolnshire English city. 
The Puritans bought Blackstone's land and laid it out as a common, and this is one of the most famous commons in America today. The idea of having a common had come over with the Puritans. On royal and manor lands, acreage would be set aside for the townspeople to use. This particular common stretched from the tidal marshes of Back Bay to Beacon Hill and was initially used as grazing land since it was mostly grassy with very few trees. That original common had three ponds and four hills, but only one of those hills and one of the ponds is still there today. So the first use for this common was as grazing land, but eventually a military training field was set up here. New rules were set forth in regards to littering as such. Stones out of ye bordering lots, or any entrails of beasts or fowls or garbage, or carrion or dead dogs or cats, or any other dead beast or stinking thing. Apparently, they had an issue with people throwing dead stuff away in open lands. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) I'm like, I could see, you know, no littering, but it's like very specific kind of littering. Entrails of beasts or fowls, dead dogs or cats, any kind of carrion. I'm like, what, were people slaughtering things right outside of this area and just, I'll throw it over there? Must have smelled loverly. (laughs) I mean, you got them throwing the pots out in the street from the chamber pots yeah the chamber pots <laughs> you got the entrails over in the park this is such a lovely place to live <laughs> i don't know do i want to walk through the streets full of brown water or should i go over through the fields with all the guts don't know hmm. <laughs> well hence why they developed some rules <laughs> city charters through the years have continued to protect this land although i don't think they're as specific as this when it comes to their new rules What is unusual about these rules forbidding dead stuff in the Boston Common is the fact that this was a place for public hangings. A diverse group of people were hanged here. There were the thieves, pirates, and murderers, but also Native Americans, religious dissenters, so that would be anybody who wasn't Puritan, and, of course, witches. Military activity started with fights in 1745 between colonists and Native Americans. When the colonists repealed the Stamp Act in 1766, a party broke out on the Common. Less than two years later, British Redcoats set up a camp in the common as tensions began to rise between the British and the colonists. The colonial militia mustered for the American Revolution in the common, and this would be an encampment for years with trenches being built. After one victory from nearby, General Washington gathered with his victorious troops to celebrate. And once the revolution was done, a bonfire celebration was held to celebrate the surrender at Yorktown. Not only would Washington be there, but also John Adams and General Lafayette. John Hancock helped to improve the common by planting a row of elms on Beacon Street, near where he lived. An area called the Mall would follow that was also lined with trees and used as a promenade where couples would walk and people could enjoy tea with each other. By the way, at this point, cows were still grazing on the common. We'll just have a little bit of tea while we watch the (laughs) cows frolic in the field. Just don't step on any pies. Smoking cow If it pies. looks dry, it's probably not. Don't step on it. In the 1830s, a new order was passed to stop that activity, which I'm sure the people strolling around appreciated. I'm sure they did. A handmade iron fence was set up around the common. The frog pond was turned into a fountain lake, which had previously been mostly a mud pond. The Civil War brought anti-slavery protests to what had become the city square, and recruitment for the war also occurred here. When the Civil War ended, a celebration happened here, too. And when President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, the city of Boston publicly mourned here. Victory Gardens would be built during World War I, and the iron fencing would disappear when World War II started, because it was needed for the war effort. The more recent era has hosted tennis matches, baseball games, speeches, 
protests, and even the first papal mass in North America. Like I said, this place has seen everything, a little piece of it. The Friends of the Public Garden and Common was formed in 1975 to help protect the common. The common has many statues and monuments that have been added to it through the years. We're going to talk about a few of them here. The Brewer Fountain was installed in 1868. Boston merchant Gardner Brewer bought the fountain, which was designed by Paul Leinert with statues by Mathurin Moreau at the Paris Exposition of 1867 and brought it back to Boston. The statues feature the figures of Galatea, Amphitrite, Assis, and Poseidon. The Boston Massacre Memorial was placed in 1888 and features a bronze figure breaking the chains of tyranny. This was designed by Robert Krauss and depicts Crispus Attucks, who was the first to be killed at the Boston Massacre in front of the Old State House on March 5, 1770. In 1913, the Blackstone Memorial Tablet was added to honor the man who originally owned the land and the people of Boston who owned the common. It was designed by R. Clipston and includes an inscription taken from the words of four of the founders of Boston. The Lafayette Memorial that was designed by John F. Paramino was added in 1924 and commemorated the centennial of Lafayette's visit to the Common in 1824. The father of the American Navy, Commodore John Barry, has a monument that was designed by John F. Paramino that was erected in 1949. The Park Street Mall was renamed as Liberty Mall in 1917 to honor our soldiers and sailors in the Great War. The 54th Regiment of Massachusetts Infantry, which was the first free black regiment in the Union Army, is honored with the Shaw Memorial. This was named in honor of their leader, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw, who was killed along with 32 of the infantry on July 19, 1863, during an assault on Fort Wagner in South Carolina. The memorial was designed by Augustus St. Gaudens and Charles F. McKim and placed in 1897. There are statues representing learning, industry, and religion in Parkman Plaza, designed by Adio Di Beccheri and Arcangelo Cassieri. A Declaration of Independence plaque was added in 1925. The flagstaff, which is a 37-foot-high pole made from one tree, has stood on the common for over 150 years and had once been the only place people could smoke so they nicknamed it Smoker Circle. This is atop Flagstaff Hill, which kids love to sled down. The Holmes Path is named for Oliver Wendell Holmes. A Civil War memorial designed by Martin Milmore called Soldiers and Sailors Monument was added in 1877. There's a fountain with an angel carved on it near Arlington Street, and many people like to rest near the fountain. Some of them have claimed to see the spirits of two women wearing Victorian-era clothing walking in a hurry near the fountain. No one knows who these spirits might belong to, but some speculate that they died in an accident nearby. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Smile Brilliant. Kelly, I know sometimes it bothers you that you grind your teeth. Do you know how many other people in America do that? Yeah, I think it's around 40 million. Yeah, so you're not that big of an oddball for grinding your teeth. <laughs> Gee, thanks. Do you know why you do it? I really don't. I think part of it is stress, anxiety. I don't know. That's what it is for a lot of people. Stress, anxiety, sometimes it's an abnormal bite. They get into this chronic teeth grinding, and it's really a horrible thing for your teeth. Not only does it cause you to be a little bit sleepless because it keeps you awake, but you get worn enamel, tooth decay, and you know that leads to having to go to the dentist, which we all love. Uh, not. <laughs> and when you have to get some of those procedures done, they're really expensive. This is true. Now, the thing that a lot of people do to try to prevent that is get a custom-fitted night guard. 
But if you go to your dentist to get that done, they could charge you anywhere between $200 to $300 per guard. And you're probably going to grind through at least two or three of those in a year. So that can get really expensive. I think my original one, which I got from my dentist, was closer to four. And I went through it relatively quickly. Well, if you go to Smile Brilliant, their lab direct process gets you the same custom fitted night guards for as little as $45 per guard. Additionally, Smile Brilliant has custom fitted teeth whitening trays and the Carry Pro electric toothbrush. I know. Check this out. My smile's gotten so much whiter. Oh, it looks great, Kelly. And you know what? Mort's getting pretty close to you. Oh, come on. My teeth are way whiter than his, but he, he is catching up. If you want to join me in pursuit of a brilliant smile and a restful night's sleep because I'm not grinding my teeth anymore, then head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use Bump at checkout for 30% off. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use Bump at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Laura Ruby and the book, 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All. Kelly, I have a new book for you to check out. You do? And it's right up our listeners' alleys, too. This is 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All, written by Laura Ruby, who is a two-time National Book Award finalist. (laughs) Very cool. I can't wait. This is an eerie historical mystery. So picture this. You're in Chicago. The year is 1941. When Frankie's mother dies and her father leaves her in the orphanage, it's not supposed to be forever. Years later, Frankie wants to know what really happened to her mother, what other ghosts lurk in the shadows of her past, and how much will she risk to find out? Ooh, ghosts of the past. Haunting and hopeful in equal measure, says the New York Times. Stunning, says Booklist. Readers will be shocked, awed, and riveted from start to finish, says Locust Magazine. Well, not only is this a book that is now in paperback from Balzer and Bray, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, but there's an audiobook. The audiobook of 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All will be available at a special, deeply discounted price all through the month of May at your favorite digital audiobook retailer. So make sure to pick this book up, 13 Doorways, Wolves Behind Them All by Laura Ruby. You can either read it in paperback or listen to the audiobook. You know, I'll probably do both. I can't wait to crack that book open. I really love having a book in my hands, but I'm also one that's time pressed, so I like to listen to audiobooks. So I'll I'll probably purchase both, I think. A great elm had once stood here, and it was used for hangings in the 17th century. A storm in 1876 destroyed it, but its former use may have left behind some spiritual residue. Even if the story about the elm is just pure legend, there is no doubt that a gallows was eventually erected in the common, and executions occurred here for 150 years. The Puritans came here seeking freedom from religious persecution, and the great irony of that was that they themselves didn't offer that kind of freedom. If you were a Quaker, you were a heathen. And while our former reviews of witch hangings in our nation's past has revealed that nearly none of those hanged for being a witch were really witches, they still should have been afforded religious freedom if they were not harming anyone. The Puritans didn't just persecute, they put people to death. One of those people was Mary Dyer. Mary Dyer had been a Quaker who lived in Rhode Island. Rhode Island was a haven for Quakers, and the original colony had been established by Roger Williams after the Puritans had banished him for his beliefs. 
Dyer was not only a practicing Quaker, but she was an evangelist for the denomination, always seeking to bring people in and helping out fellow Quakers. Boston was her favorite place to visit to support fellow Quakers and evangelize. Obviously, the Puritans were not crazy about this. And that is putting it mildly because the Puritans had threatened to hang Dyer if she kept coming to Boston. And one day, in October of 1659, they arrested her. Two other non-Puritan men were also arrested. All three were sentenced to hang. The two men were hanged first, but right before Dyer was set to have a noose around her neck, the governor commuted her sentence. Apparently, Dyer's son had pleaded her case before the governor. That would be the end of this story had it not been for Mary Dyer's calling to preach her beliefs. She just couldn't leave Boston alone. When she was arrested a second time, the judge made a bargain with her. Leave Boston and promise to never come back, and you're free to go. Dyer more than likely told him where he could put his bargain. (laughs) Because. (laughs) And she was sentenced to hang for a second time. And this time, it stuck. Her body was buried in an unmarked grave on the common. As a form of repentance, perhaps, the people of Boston have memorialized Mary Dyer with a bronze statue in front of the Massachusetts State House, where she has a view of the park where she was unjustly put to death. The wailing of a woman is sometimes heard near the statue and in the area of the common nearby. This wailing woman has also been seen as a full-bodied apparition, wearing colonial garb, walking through the common. Dyer is sometimes thought to be an anniversary ghost, appearing every 25 years to a certain troubled young person and inspiring them to live a noble life. One such man had been a drunkard, and what soon came to be known as the White Witch of the Common appeared to him, and whatever she said to him, he never revealed to anyone. But he never touched a drop of liquor again and went on to have a very successful life. Many people believe Mary Dyer is that spirit. Dyer was only one of perhaps hundreds hanged on the common. Anne Hibbins was hanged for witchcraft in 1656, but even before her there was Margaret Jones who was hanged in 1648. Anne Goody Glover was hanged in 1688 for witchcraft. She had come over from Ireland and spoke mostly Gaelic. She was a strong-willed Catholic and so didn't get along with the Puritans. She washed laundry for her neighbor, John Goodwin, and one day she got into a fight with his teenage daughter. We imagine some Gaelic curse words were hurled, and next thing you know, four Goodwin kids are accusing Goody Glover of bewitching them. When Goody couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer in English in the way the Puritans said it, she was sentenced to hang. You can imagine, I mean, first of all, she doesn't really know English that well, so they're insisting she says it in English and then the Catholics say the Lord's Prayer different than the Protestants did. Clearly she must be possessed. (laughs) Clearly. People have claimed for decades to see the shadowy images of people hanging from trees and apparitions wandering where the great elm had once stood. And we wonder something else. If the elm had indeed been used to hang people, is that why it was taken out by the storm? And afterwards, Bostonians clamored to the common and tore the tree apart to have a souvenir of the former landmark. Could there be energy attached to those fragments that they then took home with them? We'll never know. But if your family has passed down some parts of the Great Elm and something's knocking around your house, let us know. I just thought that was so, I don't know. I mean, I guess the Great Elm was this big landmark for them. So when it got blown over, they all wanted a piece of it. I'm like, I can't imagine chopping up a tree to go, I want part of the Great Elm to take home. The hanging tree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, eh. If it was used for that, I don't know. To have some kind of energy attached to it, I don't think I'd want to take that home with me. Another area of the common that is reputed to be haunted is the cemetery that is here. No oldest park in America would be complete without one, after all. The central burying ground is here. This cemetery is located on Boylston Street between Tremont and Charles Street and was founded in 1756. 
Members of the Sprague family are buried here. Father Samuel was a rebel who participated in the Boston Tea Party and fought during the Revolutionary War. And his son Charles was one of America's earliest poets. Composer William Billings, who wrote Chester, is buried here. And the famous painter Gilbert Stewart is buried here. He made the most well-known portraits of George and Martha Washington. That one of George you see all the time on the dollar bill? Yep, that was him. There's also Caleb Davis, who was a revolutionary patriot, and many British soldiers were buried here, particularly after the Battle of Bunker Hill. Sam Baltrusis writes in his Ghosts of Boston, Haunts of the Hub book, While the nearby granary burial ground earns top billing thanks to its Freedom Trail-friendly names, including Paul Revere, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and even Mother Goose, the Boston Commons' lesser-known central burying ground has something the other graveyards don't. Ghosts. And Diane found this to be true after the Ghost and Gravestones tour took her into three cemeteries in Boston and never shared one ghost story about any of them. While being in these utterly cool cemeteries at night was amazing, it was disappointing to not have one ghost story. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) I was so disappointed in this tour. So many people asked me about haunts in Boston. And I was like, based on the ghost tour I took there, I can tell you that the Omni Parker Hotel might have some ghosts in it. That was it. Diddly squat. Yeah, I was just, I was shocked. We made it, and that was the last thing they talked about. We made it through almost the whole tour, and I'm like, you know, they haven't mentioned one ghost story this whole time. And we went in, it was great to go into the graveyards, but I was expecting a little something. They just told us some creepy stories about the library that was next to the one cemetery. It had books that had covers made from human skin. Ew. (laughs) They even had, like, characters that were in the cemetery telling their stories about the people who were buried there, but they were pretending to be ghosts, I guess. (laughs) It just was very, very disappointing. In the central burying ground, in the common, shadowy figures are often seen near the trees in the graveyard. People claim to have been poked or felt something brush their shoulders or even been grabbed by something they couldn't see. One such violent encounter happened to dentist Dr. Matt Rudger. He was in the cemetery on a rainy afternoon in the 1970s, and he had bent down to look at a gravestone carving. He felt a violent yank on his collar and spun around. No one was there and he was so spooked, he quickly made his way to the gate. As he ran along, he noticed a red-haired girl with sunken cheekbones and a mud-splattered gray dress standing in the rear corner of the cemetery. She was staring at him intently. He started running faster, and as he turned to face the gate, he saw her standing there. He buzzed past her quickly and headed down Boylston Street and suddenly felt something reach into his coat pocket, and the next thing he knew, his keys were dangling mid-air in front of his face and then dropped. Oh, my word. (laughs) I I can't even. It'd be like, uh, my keys are in front of my face. She's just trying to be helpful. Yeah. Don't forget your keys. Kelly, you know darn well this is the kind of prankster ghost you would be. (laughs) Toodaloo. I'm over here. Oh, no, wait. I'm over here. Hey, let me grab your keys for you. (laughs) Without a doubt. (laughs) Ringing them in the front of them. Ding, ling, ling, ling. Rudger had always considered himself a skeptic since he was a medical professional, but his beliefs were profoundly changed that day. And Kelly, one of our favorite people, Adam Barry from Kindred Spirits. He considers the Central Burying Ground to be one of the most haunted places he has visited. We need to go. Yes. And there's so much great history there. When I was there, I started at Lexington and Concord. The Freedom Trail that you mentioned earlier followed that whole Freedom Trail and everything that's along there. So many cool things to see. I was only there for a quick turnaround trip, basically... My ex had a conference that he needed to go to, so I wandered around a tiny bit during the day, but I'm not much of a, a city girl. 
explore when, on your own <laughs> yeah on my own i was a little intimidated yeah so i really didn't get to see much i can't wait to go back yeah and then uh, we went into salem which you have to see salem and there's some great stuff to see there but like i said it's become quite the tourist trap too so it's doesn't have the aura and mystique for me as it does for some people i guess and headed down to barnstable which was a great area very haunted had a great ghost tour there and then over into cape cod and all the way over to provincetown so it was very cool we need to do a lot of traveling. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> There's also a mass grave. And here is where some of our haunting issues start, because this was not the original burial for the hundreds of bones reinterred here. These bones were originally in an adjacent area to the burial ground and were found in early 1895 when the city started building the nation's first underground trolley station, known today as the Boylston Green Line Stop. Initially, 100 bodies were unearthed. Bostonians came by in the hundreds to watch the gruesome affair of unearthing bodies. They eventually had to cover everything with like tarping and stuff because they were tired of having people watching what oh they were my doing. Word. Well, it's like a, a car crash. People rubberneck. It is. As further excavations continued, more and more bodies were discovered. There was never a clear count of bodies, but some historians claim that there could have been at least a thousand. The bones were moved to the new mass grave in the central burying ground but they had been disturbed nonetheless. And nobody is sure what all those bones are from. Obviously, we've had epidemics that have gone through, so that's a possibility. I lean more towards, I think this was probably a bunch of British soldiers that they just buried in a mass grave because they died in a battle and they just didn't care to give them that kind of honor of a separate burial for each one, or maybe they didn't have time, I don't know. The Boylston Station was constructed in 1895, and this makes it the oldest rapid transport platform in America. The grand opening was in 1897, and it has been in use since. An old streetcar that was painted bright orange is on display on a side track. There are many abandoned tunnels down here, which makes for a very eerie setting. And it makes me think about the Ghostbusters, the reboot with all the girls as the Ghostbusters. <laughs> right, marching down the tracks. Yeah, there's a scene down there that they have with ghosts. So, Trolley conductors claim to see the apparition of a British soldier down in one of the tunnels. He's in his full red coat uniform and usually points his musket at the trains before dissolving into thin air. Some believe he is residual. It's so common of an occurrence that veteran conductors will send new recruits on this route to get a kick out of watching them slam on the brakes. Oh my gosh, they're as bad as me. <laughs> I'm sure they're sitting there because they're probably training. I'm going, oh no, look out, look out, don't hit it. <laughs> People believe this spirit is connected to those disturbed bones from the station's early construction, which of course I just said that's what I think is going on here too. Located in the center of the Boston Common is the Parkman Bandstand. This is named for Dr. George Parkman, who had a lovely brownstone facing the common at 33 Beacon Street. Parkman had come from a prominent family in Boston, and he had enjoyed a successful medical career. When he retired, he decided to buy buildings and rent them out as a landlord, and he would lend money to people. One person he lent money to was a Harvard professor named John White Webster. Webster had asked for $400 and never made any attempts to repay the debt. So Parkman decided to pay him a visit at his Harvard laboratory, and he was never seen alive again. Missing persons flyers were placed everywhere, but there was no sign of Parkman. All eyes were on Webster, and he was eventually arrested, and there was a sensational trial. Webster confessed, and the torso of Parkman was found in a tea chest. As for the rest of Parkman, well, this is where the story gets really interesting. Webster claimed that he killed Parkman in self-defense. 
The landlord and former doctor had come at him in a threatening way, demanding his money. Webster grabbed his heavy walking stick and clubbed Parkman. He said it only took the one blow to knock the man to the pavement, and he didn't move after that. Webster chopped the body into pieces and then threw the remains into the privy. This was the mid-1800s, so he wasn't flushing the body parts, just hiding them where no one would want to look. Ew. And I seem to remember doing a true crime. I can't remember what it was, but the guy I thought had chopped up the woman that he had killed and had literally flushed stuff down the toilet or tried to. The torso wouldn't fit, of course, and that is why it was in the chest. There did appear to have been an attempt to burn the bones in a furnace. The case was so sensational that Charles Dickens became fascinated by it and even looked into it. Webster was hanged for his crime on August 30th, 1850. I don't know for sure, but I have a good feeling that it was in the common. The haunting connected to this is a strange one. And maybe it wasn't a haunting at all, but we don't believe in coincidences. On the anniversary of his death, 150 years later, the Parkman house had a bad issue with plumbing. The toilet, to be exact. A cistern broke on the third floor toilet and the tank overflowed. Water gushed everywhere and completely ruined the interior of the historic house. The director of the Parkman house figured that Dr. Parkman had come to pay a visit. So, yeah, maybe it just happened to have that issue on that particular day, but I don't think so. The Boston Common is a must-see for anyone visiting Boston. There is a little bit of everything represented in Boston's history here. And to have ghosts on top of that just makes the place that more special. Is the Boston Common haunted? That That is is for for you you to to decide. decide. Well, like I said, Kelly, we'll get you up there one of these days. Especially, I love their cemeteries there because it has all that symbolism in it that has the skulls and the tombstones are the really thin ones that are there. Just great stuff. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Want to remind you guys, we do have our live show September 18th in St. Augustine, Florida. That's 2021. We still have a few tickets available for that. If you have not bought them yet, I would get on it because there really are very few left. We also have opened up more places on the Lighthouse Ghost Hunt that we're going to be doing the night before. That's September 17th, 2021. We'd only had 30 spaces, but we decided to open it up to 50. So right now we have 20 available. But those first 30 went really quick. So if you guys want to join us on a ghost hunt, I'd get on that as well. If you head over to historygoesbump.com, there is a tab there. The St. Augustine Hunt has all the information there. You also can find information on getting the tickets for the live show and for the hunt in the Spooktacular crew up at the very top at the announcements. It's going to be spooktacular. It is. And we created an event over on Facebook and it has details about all the things that we're planning to do on that weekend. Gives you a few ideas of things if you want to do some stuff on your own about what you can do in St. Augustine that we would recommend for you and that kind of thing, like where to park and places to check out and stuff. So if you're not a part of the Spooktacular crew, I'd get in there so you can have that to look at. Most definitely. We got an email from Danielle. She writes, hey there, listening to the Bannock episode, and I've been meaning to tell you about my experience in Livingston, Montana. So this is the town that the song Livingston Saturday Night by Jimmy Buffett is based on. I love Jimmy Buffett. My mom was staying there one spring when I was in college a long time ago, and she was caretaking an old house that had been a bed and breakfast, but was being gutted and turned back into a single family home. The only area that wasn't torn up was the top floor, which had been the family's apartment when it was a and b Anyway, the story we had heard was that the original owner of the house died before it was finished. My mom had a couple things happen, but didn't seem bad. 
When I came to stay for spring break, I felt someone sit down on the bed and then pull the covers up over me like they were tucking me in. After I left about a month or so later, my mom was laying in bed and felt someone grab her hands. She then heard what sounded like someone's stomach growling less than a foot away from her. I hope it was somebody's stomach growling and not them growling. She got up and grabbed a couple things and slept in her car that night. The next day, she went in, grabbed the rest of her stuff, and never went back. <laughs> so I don't think she thought it was a stomach growling. I mean, I don't know. I, I'd have to see more or hear more to make that final decision, I think. Yeah. Though whomever we encountered didn't seem malicious, the hand-holding was a bit too much for my mom. So that's actually what freaked her out the most, was the hands being held. I think that would have been awesome. <laughs> she said she's been enjoying the show. Thanks for sharing that, Danielle. We greatly appreciate it. I also wanted to point out that she asked about, you know, if you don't want to give through Patreon, is there some other way to do it? At our website, over on the right-hand column, if you scroll down a little bit, there's two options for PayPal. You can give us a one-time donation or you can sign up for a monthly thing and we get y'all taken care of for that. Leah wrote us, Hi, ladies, listening to your recent podcast on my way to work and you guys gave me chills, not just because of the content, but because of the places you mentioned. I live in York, Pennsylvania and travel everywhere on the East Coast for work. What gave me chills this morning was the fact that you mentioned Lancaster on your podcast. Where was I driving through? Lancaster. And where was I going? Philadelphia, where you talked about the haunted crematorium. <laughs> Needless to say, I am staying extra vigilant today. Too much of a coincidence to mention two places I just happen to be going through today. Chills. Thanks for all your hard work. Keep it up and be well. So hopefully you made it through the day, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then Kelly, we have a shout out for the Timberwolves. That's right. Woohoo! We love us some Timberwolves. Ow, ow, ow! <laughs> we heard from Rose Marie. She said, I was snitched on. The kids found out I emailed you. I work as a volunteer middle school teacher in my small town. She volunteers to be a middle school teacher? Bless her heart. <laughs> you either have a big heart or you're crazy. <laughs> I don't know which. I help my history teacher not fall behind. One Friday, the kids were doing catch-up day and I was getting music on when they were arguing over the channel. I said I was trying to listen to History Goes Bump and needed them to shush it down a bit. One smart kid was like, does it have history? And I'm like, duh. So long story made short. Every Friday, the kids in middle school history one listen to History Goes Bump as a reward. Very cool. Wednesday is our poll day for an episode. Parents are loving the podcast and the kids want your three most favorite episodes to vote on for this Friday if you don't mind. They said they won't care about the gore either. And honestly, we are approved for your podcast in school. So please, a little help for the Timberwolves would be great. And as always, stay spooky. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing the show with the kids. And we, now their parents are listening. I know. And later on, she told me that, funnier yet, the principal thinks it's great. I make it educational. So it is approved by the principal as well. That's so cool. <laughs> so we are thrilled to death that we have a class full of middle school students listening to us. And again, Kelly, that's why I wanted to make this more of a PG rated as you can get for ghosts and other things that happen with that so that kids could enjoy it too. Because I know, especially at that age in middle school, I totally dug this stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, we do have the sense of humor of a 12 or 13 year old boy. So, so we're right there. We're right on the same level. <laughs> <laughs> but I would have been a hell of a lot more interested in history if it had been history like this. Oh, absolutely. So we are so glad you guys are listening. We actually could not pick our three favorite because it's like asking, you know, who are your three favorite children? And you have a boatload of them. <laughs> 300 and some odd. <laughs> so we actually took it to our Spooktacular crew and a lot of the common ones that were mentioned 
we put those three up. And of course, haunted cemeteries came up over and over again. So I chose one of those. I think we did a haunted Houdini. And I'm trying to remember what the other one was that I sent. I can't remember. Oh, it was the episode one of the History Goes Bump Haunted Circus miniseries that we did. Thanks for listening, Timberwolves. We appreciate you guys. We want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. And this episode was brought to you by Smile Brilliant and Laura Ruby's 13 Doorwaves, Wolves Behind Them All. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. The Civil War brought anti-slavery protests to what had become the city square and recoup- recoupment. We're going to recoup some people. <laughs> Victory Gardens would be built during war 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 war. It's woo 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 woo. And Poisidon. Poseidon. Poisidon. <laughs> I, always say, I always say everything wrong first. What, what did you what did you say Galatea as? Galatia? Galatia, yeah. I mean, maybe you're right. I don't know. The Lafayette Memorial that was designed by John F. Paramino was added in 1924 and commemorated. Rhode Island was a haven for Quakers, and the original colony had been established by Roger Williams after the Puritans. Those Puritans. Earns top billing thanks to its Freedom Tale friendly names. Freedom Trail. Trail. God dang. Ghosts. That sound weird the way I said it? Ghosts. Ghosts. <laughs> Did you add a snake onto the end of that? Ghosts. It's, it's because of sloppy tongue? S's. <laughs>